Okay, before we kick off today's episode, I have a cheeky favor to ask any creative who might be listening. If you love big ideas and would like to come to Sydney to work for the world's most awarded audio specialist agency, please drop me a line at ralph at eardrum.com. We're expanding and we'd love to hear from you. Now, on with Don't Judge Me. Okay, I'm Skype. Hey, Matt. Hey, this is Matt. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me. Where do we find you today? I'm actually home. I just got off a plane. So that's Matt McDonald, Group Executive Creative Director at BBDO New York. Matt's one of those really engaging people you could just listen to all day. He's just a, a great communicator, which is kind of handy for a podcast, really. I like having live conversations, and I've never really been a big fan of people who kind of resort to email to get things done. He's passionate about the world of advertising and has some pretty interesting ideas about where it's headed. I'm convinced that Betty Crocker is going to start a streaming service, and gonna, there's going to be this dystopian show about Betty Crocker in 2044. Uh, that's kind of like The Handmaid's Tale, but with bakers. See what I mean? And he also has a handle on what's missing from the work we're seeing today. I think we're at a moment where we need more comedy. Matt had literally just stepped off a long flight when we spoke, and I was hiding in the lobby of a Tokyo hotel, which explains the echo. And I call myself an audio specialist. Anyway, this is Don't Judge Me, and in this episode, Matt McDonald. So what does a typical day look like for you then? You know, it's, a, it's interesting. Um, I spend a lot of time on the phone. Uh, a lot of time in teleconferences, a lot of time talking to clients, a lot of time talking to our teams. You know, I'm pre- you know it's pretty unique in that most of my crew is scattered across the country. You know, we, we just opened up this office, uh, you know, servicing AT&T and DirecTV in Los Angeles. So we have, a, we have a number of creatives stationed out there. We've got creatives in Dallas, and we've got teams in New York. And so trying to manage that far-flung team, but it just means that I'm on the phone a lot. In fact, I was on a shoot yesterday, and the director actually commented that he's like, you know, um, we, we really need to get Matt off the phone. So like, uh, you know, but it's so I spend a lot of time talking to talking to people and really just trying to, you know, trying to uh, I, I guess the, the way it's we're trying to make this team feel like one cohesive team, even though we're in lots of different places. And, you know, w- whether it's they're at the office in L.A. or Dallas or if they're on shoots, which we, we, we shoot like 300 days a year. Um, it, it's really kind of just kind of pulling and keeping all those those things together. So a typical day is like, you know, it's it's reviewing a lot of the work that we have in development because, you know, we've we've got a lot of campaigns and a lot of different things in development at, at any one given time. Uh, lots of checking in on productions in various stages and, and lots of really talking to clients um, and sort of helping them understand where we are and um you know, kind of putting out fires when 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 we have fires. Not not to not to say that we have a lot of fires going on, but you know, it happens every once in a while because it is advertising. Yeah, a reasonable a reasonable amount of fires that, that's acceptable. Yeah, and you know, I, I think a big part of my job these days is trying to manage time zones and trying to you know stay in one time zone as much as humanly possible, and you know, try to at least at some point unplug when you know, like when it gets a little too too late on the East Coast. What would you say is the worst part of your job? I think email is the worst part of the job. I mean, the I, I think that I, I'm very much a phone person. I like having live conversations. 
and I've never really been a big fan of people who kind of resort to email to get things done. Um, so I, I think that, you've t- I don't know, I've just got like this thing about email. I, I was at South by Southwest a number of years ago and somebody very smart was on stage and said that email is the only to-do list in the world where anybody feels like they can add something to it at any given time. <laughs> and I really took that to heart. It's like, you know, that's right. Yeah, you know, like right. it's, Email is not like your ability to like sort of control me like an automaton. So yeah, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of email. Um, other than that, I don't really have a lot to complain about. Like I think I I really think advertising is a wonderful place to work because you you work with these amazing people like these funny, creative, sometimes cynical, always sarcastic, but you know always like we're just you know fun, creative people, and you know even people who are aren't necessarily on the quote-unquote creative part of the job. The account people, the strategists, uh, you know, they, they, they all come from that same world of wanting to make things and make great things. And uh, and so, you know, I, 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 still cons- I still get to pinch myself every once in a while that I get to do this and get paid for it. Okay, well, what about um, up-and-coming creatives? What, what do you look for in them? What do you look for in the person that you're uh, looking to take on? I look for people that make things on their own, um, you know, and because I think like, for example, when I was coming up, like, you know, it, it wasn't quite as easy to make things as it is now. You didn't have access to the same tools and technology. And so I, I really look for people who are kind of self-starters, who understand how to like sort of develop their own voice and passions and their own style of work and, and, and have demonstrated an ability to do that on their own before they get access to things like producers and production budgets. So um, I, always, I always find that to be like the, the best people I've ever hired are the people who have like sort of created something and given birth to something that has nothing to do with advertising, um, but that is something that you're kind of jealous of, whether it's, you know, a piece that they wrote for Medium. Uh, we, you know, I, I've had people who are cartoonists for The New Yorker. Um, I've had people who had written like comedy pieces for McSweeney's. Uh, I once hired someone who had invented a hashtag on Instagram called Empty Met. And, you know, he did that because he felt like the Met Museum had like too few followers and that bummed him out. So he convinced (laughs) this. It was genius. He convinced the Met to let him and a bunch of his photographer friends roam the halls in the middle of the night. And they were going to take all these great photographs and, and tag them with Empty Met. And then all of a sudden, boom, the, the Met had hundreds of thousands of followers instead of just tens. And, that is, uh, yeah, that yeah. is awesome. And uh, the, the New York Times wrote an article about him, and I just happened to, uh, to meet his sister, who also works in advertising. And I said, you know, does your kid brother maybe want health insurance? She's like, yes. So, you know, it's like that's <laughs> I, I think those are the, the, the best finds uh, these creative people who may not have any, you know, sort of interest or like, like real deep knowledge about advertising, but they but they have a voice and they've got a vision. And I, I think you can really channel those people to do great things. So to sum up, you look for someone with voice, vision and no health insurance. Yes. I mean, totally. And poverty is great. I mean, that really is. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Okay, what sort of work do you like to see from the next generation of creatives? I think we're at a moment where we need more comedy, to be honest. I, we've, Amen. I think we've seen years and years of like really, really passionate work, really great work, but um, like almost 
it's gotten to the point where it's like not everything in the world has to save the world. And, you know, and I think that that's a natural reflection of sort of like advertising looking itself and wanting to use its powers for good. You know, um, that, you know, we, we can help our clients and help these great corporations to use their resources to do better things in the world. And I think there's a great place for that. But in doing so, I think we've kind of walked away from uh, the classic, just hilarious, funny, that that thing that somebody did that you can't believe they got away with. And uh, I, I think the world needs that sense of humor desperately right now, you know, um, because in, in addition to all the amazing things that advertising can do, it can also make you laugh and it can also make you feel something. And I think that we, we desperately need more of that. So that's what I would love to see from the next generation. No, I completely agree. It's that new style of irreverence. What is that post, post, postmodern comedy? What's that, what's that bit that you've never seen before and you can't believe that they, they got somebody to pay for? Well, what about you? What's your proudest piece of work? Um, what, what's the work you're most proud of? I think there's a couple things. There's, you know, I was really proud of the work that we've done for It Can Wait, and that's AT&T's campaign to fight distracted driving. I think, uh, you know, from a craft point of view, I think we, we put a lot of effort and a lot of passion into making these things visceral and to really, like, sort of almost shocking the audience into to recognition of the problem. But, I, you know, on a, on a personal level, like... Seeing some of the feedback we've gotten um, from people out in the world who who genuinely have like always felt like they could get away with uh, texting and driving or using their phones while driving, and then they see some of the work that we've done. For example, this work we just did with Errol Morris, where we um, we kind of recreated victims of distracted driving accidents like five years on, so you could see just how much had been lost. And we did these uh, pieces where we met the family and just. It became these really, the, the, all the films became these like really moving pieces about grief and uh, yeah. how grief and trauma can destroy a family for years beyond the accident. When I was 16, I wasn't thinking about how my life would end up. Things had turned out differently? I don't know. I wanted to be an athletic trainer. Well, I actually wanted to be an athlete, but I wasn't very good at sports. They wanted me to play football in high school, but I hated football. Life keeps racing forward for everyone except me someone was driving and not paying attention an accident happened and my nephew was in the wrong place at the wrong time and just like anecdotally people just say like like i watched that and i will never pick up my phone again and so i think uh that that to me is like that being a part, just being able to have some small part in that is, 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 is uh, you know, it's, it's important. And um, we do a lot of work for Autism Speaks. Um, and that's an organization that I think is, it's, it's an amazing organization. And uh, there's, a, there's a number of people in my family that uh, have autism and or are on the autism spectrum. And so I've learned a lot about the uh, that condition over the years, and just I think they do like amazing work uh, advocating for people with autism. And I think that you know you can improve people's lives just by helping them understand what the signs are. Just a simple act of helping people understand what the signs of autism are can really change a kid's life for the better. So I'm I'm really proud of the work that we've done on that front. Yeah, amazing. None of it is funny. 
none of it's funny, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so so I need to take some of my own advice. I mean, this is the least hilarious work. That's what you're looking for in the next generation of other people. Exactly. So um, help us make that can, funny. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, is there a piece of work that still haunts you to this day that you think? Oh God! I just hope no one ever finds out that I did that. Oh my God! Yeah, <laughs> yes. All right. So, I actually have a really interesting start to my career in that um, I didn't go to ad school right away after college. Um, instead, I, I grew up in a small town called Peoria, Illinois. Oh, I've heard of it. Yeah, it's a, a lot of people have heard of it. It's like there's this classic expression: "Does it play in Peoria?" And that that's based on that's right the fact that Peoria was the more, most normal town in Illinois, or that's right in the in um, the country. It was the most a- average place on earth. The perfect average in terms of income, in terms of population, in terms of uh, demographics, and so a lot of marketers would do test products there. They would t- they test market their products to see if it would play in Peoria. If it, if it played in Peoria, uh, then you had a, ch- a chance on on this thing making it in the real world. Um, Peoria is not quite the same as it used to be, so it's not quite the most average place in the world. Um, but anyway, it was a great place to grow up. And so after uh, college, I went to college in Peoria as well. I ended up at this small, tiny advertising agency that had four employees and then the founder. And there were two creatives. uh, And I was half the creative department. And we just did car dealership ads. I mean, all of our accounts were like the, you know, no money down, no credit, no problem. Get on down here and get yourself, you know, an Oldsmobile. This is back when Oldsmobile was the thing uh, for like 30 bucks a month. And the amazing thing about this place is that they had absolutely zero regard for copyright law. Yeah. They just did not give a damn. I really like where this is going, by the way. We would use the Star Wars theme song in our work. We would use, like, we would needle drop Rolling Stones, like, Satisfaction on an ad about how you're going to be super satisfied when you get this new Oldsmobile. And we just, we did not. I see what you did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but it was, but the amazing thing was, it was like, it was actually, it was so much fun. We had a blast because we could just do whatever we wanted. And we would make these commercials for like 500 bucks, shoot them on video. And I would like cast all my friends from, from college who were like actors and, you know, uh, you know, want to be writers. And we, we, we had a blast, but I mean, the, the, the work was terrible. I mean, make no mistake. This is, uh, we, I, I'm proud to say that we kind of elevated the form of local car dealership ads in, in Peoria, Illinois for like mm. the year and a half that I was there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if anybody were to dig up those spots now and like play them, um, for my family or my peers, I would die of embarrassment. I would probably <laughs> drown myself in a pool somewhere, but you realize that there is some liaisons listening right now feverishly googling <laughs> someone out there digging this up yeah you know funnily enough like I recruited one of my friends because I was like like I'm half the creative department and I, I need someone else to hang out with so I, I recruited one of my friends uh, Rob Allen and uh, so he was he became my intern because he was still in, in in school and so Rob was my intern and we would just make whatever we wanted uh, and whatever we could manage to sell he ended up being uh, like a really really great producer at Crispin went on to Leo Burnett um, and like so like it's really funny like the number of really great advertising careers that came out of this tiny shop that nobody has heard of until today until today 
if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice when you were first starting out at that little shop, or maybe maybe in the in in the next shop, because that sounded pretty idyllic. Uh, but what would it be? I think I would have maybe not taken everything so seriously right at the start. I think I was kind of a a little bit of a pain in the ass uh, when I started out, and like really being super precious about everything. It's like that you know. Um, Beating every creative decision up to within an inch of its life to make sure that it was like, you know. And I think had I just loosened up and had more fun right from the start, I probably would have had more fun, and it would would have been reflected in the work. And I think that that's you know overall that's probably good advice is that to just to remember that this is fun and that we should have fun with it and have fun with the process. And it is after all that this is advertising and this is not life or death. Yeah. And if you let that freedom inject itself into the work, you, you you get better work as a result. And if you were starting out today, would you still want a job in advertising? Yeah, I would absolutely. I think that you know we get to work with so many amazing people now. I mean, like I think what I think has been amazing about the last twenty years is that they're like people don't think of advertising as a dirty word anymore. I, I mean, like. Uh, the world of branded content, the fact that content can come from anywhere. Um, literally almost anyone can have an Emmy-nominated television show. I'm convinced that Betty Crocker is going to start a streaming service. And <laughs> they're gonna, there's going to be this dystopian show about Betty Crocker in 2044. Uh, that's kind of yeah. like The Handmaid's Tale, but with bakers. Uh, it's going to be really goddamn good. And we're going to be like, wow, Betty Crocker I'd, made a, I'd give that a go. Betty Crocker made a really good show. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> like, and they deserve that Emmy. And I think that's the amazing thing about the world we live in now. And so, uh, and av- advertising is a part of that. And so I've got, you know, I would absolutely jump into this full force because I think that there's no end to what you can make and there are no ends to the connections you can make. So, if wherever you want to go in life or wherever you want to make, um, this is an amazing foundation. Uh, you can stay at it your entire career and you can make books and you can make television shows and you can make movies um, and you can make good old fashioned uh, uh, television commercials. Um, and it's just a wonderful foundation to, to really have that discipline of like, this is what it's like being a, a working creative every day where you get up in the morning and you have to produce and you have to make things. Um, mm. You know, and, and this is how you work and negotiate with other people, because I think yeah. regardless of the art form, there are clients and there are other people mm. who are paying for the work and you have to work with them to achieve a vision. Uh, and I think that this is a it, it's it's an industry where you really learn those tools uh, pretty quickly. It's interesting, the theme that is recurring when I ask this question to some other people as well, the theme of respect for the client and, and uh, empathy for the client's role. It's never adversarial. It's always, yeah. like, we have to get this done. We have to understand their situation. We have to uh, work it through with them. Absolutely. In fact, because I've worked at places before that sort of had that adversarial relationship with the client or maybe, and I've, you know, I've been in places before where there wasn't a ton of respect maybe for some of the clients. And that, it's an amazing thing at BBDO. There's a deep respect and a deep partnership amongst the clients and the people on our teams. And I, I think that's why the, uh, BBDO has been able to have this great legacy of making great work. It's because they, they start with the relationship. Um, and it's only through having trust that you can really, really get to somewhere good. Uh, because just rocking up and forcing somebody to buy something that they don't want to make, I, I don't see how that works out for anybody. You might be able to get 
you know, one great execution out of that, but you're not, you're certainly not going to have a long lasting relationship. If advertising didn't exist, what would you be doing? I think I would probably be, I would be writing somewhere. Um, you know, for, for a long time, I wanted to be like a newspaper columnist. Um, the, that's a, probably a dying art form, <laughs> but um, I, I would definitely be writing. Um, what exactly I would be writing, that's, that's probably up for debate. But um, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, I, I, I'm always happiest when I'm putting something down on paper. So I'm sure we would be doing that in some way, shape, or form. Or maybe recycling paper. I would be recycling. Um, or greeting cards. <laughs> exactly. Writing, writing greeting cards, yeah. you know. It's, there's some good ones out there. Let's talk about Leo. So why do you think winning a Leo is valuable? And, and therefore, why should, well, if you do, assuming you do think it's valuable, why should people enter? Uh, you know, I think that it's a really great uh, jury. You know, it's it's a, like the 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 people that they pull together every year are you know amongst the most respected out there. So I think being recognized by that jury means that it's you know you've definitely done something great, um, and it's also a really attractive trophy. I mean, I don't know if that like I mean that's when as trophies go, it's really impressive, uh, and 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 typically one of the yeah. heaviest. <laughs> So, like, you could pick up one of those things, and if you were ever in need of, like, sort of, like, defending your life, that's the first one I would go for, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, no, I just, I think it's, I think it's a great show. The, the work that they, that they highlight is always fantastic, but and I just have a deep respect for the people that they pull together that, that judge year in and year out. So I think that it's, it's definitely a jury that you want to be recognized by. And when you're judging, if you're um, jury president, you're giving your jurors the little pep talk at the beginning. Is there a criteria that you use or an analogy you use when you're helping them define bronze to silver, silver to gold, gold to Grand Prix? Is there, is there something that you use that you can share? The best way, I think, I think that, that gold needs to be that sort of like, I try to think of gold as like sort of like this is the best achievement, like across the show and so you really have to limit the number of golds that you're willing to put out there and really have in mind that it's just like one or two that really achieve that level um in 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 the not just the spate of that year's entries but also looking back at the last few years and where things are going um because you know i think it's really important that that you know that we really recognize the best of the best and not sort of fall into that trap where it's like sort of a participation game you know, so I, I think that that's, you know, definitely when it comes to Grand Prix, definitely when it comes to golds, I think silver is reserved for those things that are almost, almost gold. Like just like there's just one something or, or another that just kind of keeps it from falling short of that. And then and then bronze would be that thing that you would be amazingly proud of in any year. You know, like it's like it's sort of like you if you would be jealous of that work uh, and proud to make it no matter what, that would be sort of that level. Um the, it's not the easiest criteria in the world. I think that so many of these things are pretty subjective, and it depends a lot on the jury makeup. It depends a lot on the type of work that's being entered that year and sort of the overall trends in advertising. But, you know, I think it's always a, a really good rule of thumb that just only a couple things are really, truly worthy of being gold. What about um, your most memorable or, or bizarre judging experience? I don't know that I've had I've I've had just really lucky member like like lucky judging experiences where you know I I haven't had too many issues. Um, 
I think, yeah, no, it's, it's, sorry to like sort of punt that question, but like the, the, the juries I've always been on have been very good. Um, I can't really say that I've, I've had, it, but they, they haven't been super memorable either, you know? Um, generally, it's just been like a good group of people. This is the most boring answer in the world. Once there was a... <laughs> we're going to have to make something up. Here we go. I was, I was okay, judging this is the D- answer that we're going to edit in. I was judging DNAD, and a bear came into the room, and it was really crazy, and uh, <laughs> killed a bunch of people. And, uh, and that's how I got hired at BBDM. Got it. I've spoken to some other jurors who were there, so... Uh, that yeah. bear was really a problem. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to go to the, um, the quick fire round. So uh, even less thought is required for this. Um, uh, I'm going to start easy. You've got two passes that you can, uh, that you can use. Sure. All right, here's the first one. Do you keep a portfolio still or a reel? And if so, what's on it? I do. Yeah, I, I try. I actually keep uh, on Vimeo. I try to upload everything I've ever done. And um, whether or not I make that stuff public or not is, you know, up to me. And then I do have a website. It's a, it's a few years out of date, but I, I do keep it, you know, um, just because, you know, you never know, know what happens in life. Uh, so I think yeah. it's, it's just a good habit to keep. Uh, so you've got twin girls. How old are they? I've got twin girls, eight and a half year old girls, Alexander and Finley. I've got a one year old boy, a boy, Milo, who's turning one in a couple weeks. And then we have baby number four on the way, and he's coming Ooh. in December. Yeah. So, the, the, okay, I, call, so. I, I call them the junior clients. And uh, <laughs> of all my clients, they're the ones who get everything that they want. They're the most demanding, easily. Um, and they are so unreasonable. They're the most important clients. Um, totally unreasonable, yes. What would you say if your four wanted to get into advertising? Uh, my, my daughter Finley is totally interested in advertising. She's uh, she, right. she's very curious about it. Uh, I would be perfectly happy with it if they if they wanted to get into advertising, you know. And I yeah, I would probably encourage them to explore the the things that are connected to advertising as well. You know, uh, mm. you you asked me before what what other career I might have. I actually, if I weren't a writer, I would also really love to be an editor. You know, I, I think you know mm. editing film. Editing video is like something that I I just always loved that part of the process. Always felt like I like naturally gravitated towards that, and I think that that would be just one of those other things that's connected to the industry that I would also encourage like my girls and um, my boys to potentially explore as well. Great. Okay, here come the spicy ones. Okay. How many people have you fired? Oh, oh my God. Uh, more than I wish I had to. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, 0 to 10, 10 to 20, 20 plus. Oh, 0 to 10, 10 to 20. I, well, so I think, you know, advertising is a pretty cyclical business. And so there's a lot of expansion, expansion and contraction. That's just like the, the money side of the business. That's not fun. So I've definitely probably fired more than 15 people in my career. And not because of lack of talent, because I feel like we're really good at hiring. Um, it, it was more to do with the financial realities. Like we lost a client or we uh, lost some billings. And uh, it's never yeah. uh, it's never a great part of the job. It's always really hard. But um, I think it's sort of the, the reality of, of the way that advertising is these days. And so, like, you asked why, you know, I keep a portfolio. It's like you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. So it's always good to be prepared. Yeah. And have you ever had to step on or over someone to get to where you are today? Step on or over? I don't know. No, I never, I never had to step over uh, a body. <laughs> like, I, it, I've been lucky in that, like, sort of 
really a lot of the times that I got either a promotion or was asked to step up into a role is because I was being pushed into it. Uh, and I was being pulled into it. And they said that, you know, we think you're ready for this. And there are a couple times where I'm like, I, I'm not, I'm really happy where I am. And uh, I'm not sure if that's necessarily a role I want to take on. They're like, no, you should do this. It'll be like, you think, we think you'd be great at it and it'll be good for you. And in every single case, I was able, you know, I, I was glad that they did so. So, you know, I've never, I've, I've never really felt like that. My career has been like the opposite of House of Cards in in a really good way. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah. and and I've tended to work for places where that's not really the bag. So, mm. no, well, that's uh, that. There's a theme there as well. See, but uh, the, the oh, nice I take guys. It that first agency back in Peoria, I, I did kill like three people. Ah, sure. so yeah, okay. <laughs> but you know, that's way in the past now. Yeah, no, we don't have to. We don't have to talk about that. I don't want to undo twenty years of therapy. Exactly yeah. right. Very expensive. Let's move on. How often do you conceive or actually write ads these days? A fair amount. Um, the when we were pitching AT and T a couple years ago, I had to write a lot of the work, and um, the it, and we were like it was when the ATT went up for pitch back in 2016 it, it, the amazing thing about the process it was like everybody at BBDO really chipping in uh, and, and making that happen but um, ultimately a lot of the work came from something I sat down and wrote one morning as we were really starting to pitch um, so I, I think that you sort of like especially like the, the more senior you get in the job the further you get away from the work the sort of less connected you are so every once in a while you really do have to pick up the pen um and not to to mm. sort of because you want to show off your ego or something else but you, you you sort of just have to get in there and show that you can do it um and like i so i still like from time to time we'll pick up the pen and write something um and i you know it's fun i still enjoy it i mean it all, it's also good to be connected to the uh, process just to remind yourself, actually, this this is uh, this is hard sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it's enjoyable. That's why we do it. But we can kind of forget if we uh, haven't been writing for a while, just to go. Oh yeah. Oh no! And I think the worst thing I'm guilty of is like when I when I do write something, they're like, "Did you put a stopwatch on that?" I'm like, "No." It's <laughs> like it's 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 a little long. <laughs> So, you know, like, I think that that's, but it is, I mean, like, I think, um, it's, it's important to do that every once in a while to stay fresh. And, um, you know, the, I, in my position, like I'm overseeing a lot of work and I don't, I don't get to go on as many shoots as, you know, as I might like, but that's really, that's the job of the creative directors. That's the job of the teams. Um, but you know, it's, it's important to every once in a while get in there and to make something to, to sort of stay sharp and stay fresh. What would be the most expensive thing you own other than your home? And what's it worth? What's the most expensive thing I own and what it's what is it worth? Other than my house. I'm trying to think. Um as you're perusing your walls of French. I masters. don't we don't have much art. Um, you know, my my wife got me a really expensive pair of shoes for my birthday because she, she works in fashion and she's got a much keener sense of what I should be wearing. So that could be one thing. But I think it's like yeah. we, we do have a car. We You know, we've got four kids come or, or we will have four kids by the end of the year. So we had to buy a very large SUV and it was pretty expensive. So I think that's 
that's the most expensive thing we own um, because we, we need this thing to haul around all our little ones. Uh, and we just had to get new tires for the thing. And when I saw the bill, I, I like <laughs> gasped out loud in shock and horror. So, um, yeah, that's, you know. They may well be the more expensive thing. Yeah. Because you're not going to get any any return on those tires. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely not. And um, and my kids' clothing, they're, my kids' wardrobe, again, that might be the most expensive thing they own. Because they dress really well. They dress way better than I did when I was a kid. <laughs> But no, I mean, like, you know, with the kids and everything else, we, we don't, we just have the one house, you know, uh, we try to keep it, you know, pretty, pretty chill. And you got a mid-century house, right? I read somewhere. We, so yeah, we bought this, um, oddly enough, we bought, it's actually kind of a funny story, this house. We bought this house that uh, was a crumbling mid-century on like three acres and wow. um, it had a hole in the roof. Uh, the insurance company, when they did their inspection, they said, if you don't replace this roof, like literally the day that you buy it, we're not going to cover it. Um, j- there were massive problems with this place, but like it had ton, like the bones were great and we saw a lot of potential. In yeah. it. I was terrified of it. My wife, on the other hand, uh, she's, uh, she works in product development and fashion. So she, she actually feels like she can get things done. She can produce things. So she's not afraid of anything. So she's like, oh no, we can do this. Um, and so we, uh, we, we got a great deal on it. And the great thing about this house is that the spirit of it is, is super creative. The, the person who owned it before us, uh, he was a set designer in the sixties and, and was a set designer for a bunch of Volkswagen ads that were done by, um, Bernbach. And wow. also was a set designer for LBJ and had like ran a theater in, in Manhattan. And his wife was a stylist for Vogue. Oh my God. And so we felt like the creative, the creative energy in this house yeah. was, was like right on the money for mm. us. And when we told some of our friends that we had bought this place or that we were putting in an offer, like people who worked in production, they're like, oh my God, you bought that, you bought the Ramsey house? Like you don't like we've been going to parties there since the seventies, so uh. we've we've it's been this labor of love that we're really working on and kind of bring bringing back to life and yeah. sinking literally all of our money yeah. into. No, um, I, I feel your pain. But I've um, I've got yeah. a similar passion. We've got an A-frame place that was built in the sixties and mid-century, um, all the sort of nooks and crannies and the sunkenness and and uh, the architect built it for himself and his his family oh that's awesome yeah no i've got also now the addiction of trying to fill it with all mid-century furniture and and pottery yeah, and everything so i am constantly on the lookout it's just like a oh, I, I love it but it's just like i'm driven i mean i'm in tokyo now and i spent yesterday morning going through like 12 mid-century antique shops oh, that's very in tokyo. cool I mean, what what am i thinking <laughs> yeah i know but just like trying to buy european antiques right. in tokyo you think this is not smart. Well, that's, you know, and you can get great denim there, too, you know, so it's, you can kill two birds with one stone. I, we don't, we, we're, we're not allowed to have nice furniture for another 10 years, at least. I mean, like, oh, yeah, you know, true. Our, we, yeah. we, we, we're, we're going to have two under two, and, like, Milo just literally will just spit over everything, so, you know. Like, so we're just going to work on the house. We'll worry about the furniture some other, some later yeah. date. Okay. Uh, two more questions. How much do you earn? I'm not going to answer that one. I'm allowed to pass. Yep, you are. When do you plan to retire and make room for one of the uh, liaison delegates? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't plan on retiring for a very long time. 
Um, and I've actually like given this uh, like a, a, a fair amount of thought. Like I want to I want to be doing this as long as I possibly can. So, um, like I think that. I probably, and then the, given that we're having another baby now, I probably need another 20 years of working. So, you know, like ask me that question when I'm like, you know, entering my early 60s, mid 60s, and, you know, I'll try to give you a firmer answer. But as of right now, I think I will be working for a while. Yeah, they have to wait that, that, to bide their time. Exactly. Hey, uh, Matt, that is fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, giving us your time. Hey, no, that, that was a yeah. lot of fun. That's I appreciate it. In- Thanks, and enjoy Tokyo. I will. If you see any really expensive baby-proof furniture, let me know. Thanks, Matt. Bye-bye. So that was Matt. And if you ever get the chance to work for him, grab it. You'll never look back. If you like this podcast or you're a fan of baby-proof mid-century furniture, please share this episode and leave us a review. Next time, I'll be chatting with creative legend, awards judge extraordinaire, and worldwide CCO of an ocean, Jeremy Cragen, who shares some fantastic insights about how to transition from creative to creative director. And that's the hard leap to make because... You know, when you're a creative, you know, you're, you're pretty selfish, or I think you should be selfish. Um, you know, it's, it's all about you. And then being a credit director, it's all about them. That's next time on Don't Judge Me. Don't Judge Me is an eardrum production for the London International Awards with help from Jesse Williams, Kate Wiley, Paul Taylor, and David McDonald. I'm Ralph Van Dyke, and I hope you'll join me in judgment next time.